All right, this is our last class of the semester for sexual ethics. I'm going to sort of, I guess, offer some concluding reflections. Um, I'm sure a lot of it is going to draw from things we've already talked about, kind of reiterating it, uh, showing the importance of it, but also want to highlight uh, a few other points um, and sort of hopefully end on a strong note. Um, so it, it's not completely random thoughts that I'll be sharing, but um, there'll hopefully be an order to it, but there are things that I guess are close to my mind and my heart. We want to look at concrete theological topics, uh, drawing from what we talked about this semester, but again, trying to keep it within this catechetical, um, evangelical, pedagogical approach we've been taking, where you can have all the, the stuff you want. How are we going to communicate this? Uh, how are we going to change minds and change hearts among Catholics and uh, those who are not Catholics to draw them into the truth? And, and I think this is a challenge particularly in the, the, the culture wars that we have in our society that have seeped into the church, um, particularly over issues of life, but also of sexuality, the going the back and the forth. Um, we need to stand for the truth. We need to stand for what we believe. But, you know, has the culture wars really proven beneficial? Have we made headway? Um, in some ways, yes. But I think some could argue in other ways, no. Um, with that, you know, our, our attitude, seeing the world, seeing the corruption, seeing the liquidity of postmodernity, uh, should we be antagonistic towards it? Um, and, and constantly criticizing, putting down, instead of promoting and presenting our own truth. Um, because I think sometimes if we are constantly criticizing, constantly picking apart, constantly condemning, we kind of resort to these worldly political techniques where if I say these things, I'm going to change minds. No, uh, these programs, techniques don't change hearts or minds. And sometimes I think we end up being reactionary, defining ourselves uh, according to what we oppose instead of really proposing um what we believe. Uh, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved politically, um, but we can't expect those outside of the church or even in the church to treat us well or respect us if we don't do it with them. Um, so again, I think this is dealing both with the culture but within the church um, also. Most of it, though, focusing on the church itself and our, our atmosphere and what we believe, but also trying to draw people into communion with Christ. So what I want to do is sort of go back to the beginning um, and address the, the concentric circles that we talked about. Remember we said there were basically four of them, um, sexual ethics in the middle, then anthropology, then marriage, and then basically sort of the world view. Um, and we sort of saw sort of the secular perspective on each of those, where the world is, and then trying to propose throughout the course of our course, the different units, 
what the Catholic perspective would be, what this response would be. And so I want to start, though, at the, the end, I mean, the ethical, the, the center part, by just, after looking after everything we've talked about this semester, those six building blocks, or those six essential uh, criteria um, for us evaluating sexual ethics or, or a sexual act or, or any of these types of, of things that we want to evaluate. The first one being just sort of the anthropological principles, specifically the personalistic norm. Not treating others as objects, respecting the person, who the person is meant for, you know, communion, gift, all of these different types of things. So this personalism that has become so prevalent uh, in the 20th and beginning of the 21st century. Second, <clears throat> natural law, the meaning of the body, but specifically here looking at the act, that inseparability principle of the procreative and unitive dimension of the act. So we can look at the different acts and say whether or not they, they stand up to the perspective of the natural law. Tied to that is, of course, the, the language of the body, where we see that the law is now become more personalistic and inscribed into the body, the spousal and generative meaning of the body. And I think tied to that, though, we want to see sexual difference. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about gift of self and receptivity, uh, the importance of the body, sexual difference plays a part. And as we, we saw earlier, that, that need to reflect the importance of difference of the other <clears throat> um, and how that plays into the meaning of the body and how our masculinity and femininity uh, speaks speaks a language. Number four, the gift of chastity. Just understanding what chastity is uh, as a gift and a virtue. Um, to be able to have temperance, to be able to control oneself and reverence, and uh, we could say, is this act ultimately chaste or not? Does it does it does it reflect self mastery? Number five. Is the reverence for the sacred, which I think <clears throat> sort of underpins everything we've talked about. The sacredness, the reverence, that donum pietatis that we have towards the body, towards sexuality, towards fertility, towards the, the, the meaning of gift, towards sexuality in general. You know, the, the return to the understanding of Venus. And then finally, just that meaning of the sacrament, of the sign, particularly within the context of the sacrament of marriage is, is, is our love living up to that sign of being Christ's body, his union with his body in the church. I am going to, though, add one more, um, which I think is probably, seven is nice to, to, to end on or to have. But I want to say also the importance of love. We've talked about this. Uh, there's both charity and eros. Uh, love is what, what guides all of this. And again, in a certain sense, we're all created for love. The natural law reflects the, the gift of love and the act. Is this behavior, is this attitude one reflecting a true and proper understanding of what love is? We looked at love last semester and the fundamentals. But again, I think it's something that's going to be really crucial for us to understand here. So that's the seventh one. Just that importance 
of love in the context of understanding the meaning of sexuality uh, and a proper sexual ethic. Um, so we're going to, you know, keep coming back to them. And we saw how we repeated them over and over and over again during the context of our, our class together. The second, though, comes to anthropological. And this is where I, I want to, again, offer just some ideas that I've been reflecting on. We've seen the importance of um, person, gift, and communion. We've seen the importance of sexual difference. But we've also kept talking about the body and, and how the body has become a real stumbling block to the world today, a kind of like neo-Gnostic world. But we're going to keep coming back to the body, and this is where I think the theology of the body and the role of the body is, is the linchpin here for, for creating an argument and for standing our ground as Catholics. The body, of course, union with the soul. The body is the sacrament of the person. <clears throat> but I've been doing some reading on sort of like the body in the context of liquid modernity. Uh, remember we talked about this as sort of a way to describe post-modernity where they're no longer solids, but things become very subjective, very liquid, on a spectrum. It was actually Dr. Angela Franks, who I've talked about a fair bit this semester. She has written a number of essays on modern liquidity and bodies, um, and particularly this idea of like, how do we understand the body, not just as some static substance, but not as this purely liquid material either? And so she proposes a couple of things. One is an essay called The Body is Formed a Stream. Well, so there, there are boundaries there, but still the stream is moving. There is motion there. Um, and so we can take some of these insights um, of, of sort of the 20th century and, and apply them within a true Catholic personalistic anthropology. She also talks about, instead of like describing man and the body as fluid, to use motion or the idea of motion, that the, we are bodies in motion, not only moving in the world, but she talks about this like vector nature of the body as Christ comes from the Father and goes back to the Father we got to see our, our lives within that vector of Christ, within that mission, that we're moving, that we're on a journey. Um, again, I'm going to encourage you all to read some of her stuff. The, the other es That essay is like from Comunio, um, Fluidity, Man, Trinity, and Eucharist. Uh, she also has one on liturgy and liquid identity, and also this horror and feasting and vampirism and feasting on liquid bodies. Um, so you'll be able to see some of the, the links to those things in the notes. But ultimately here, you know, we have got to um, realize that the body is not just created as a solid, but we are called to exist in relationships. So I take that Ratzinger's anthropology, which is so central, that we're created for communion, we're created for a relation, that, that we're not called to live alone. And in fact, I think, as we talked about last semester, friendship is so crucial 
we can't be moral alone. So this is like, this is the way of accompaniment. This is the way of synodality. If we're going to interpret it properly. Sin hodos on the way together. And, and so we look at it, so much sexual sin is not rooted necessarily in a flawed anthropology or lack of understanding of the natural law, but in, in loneliness and isolation. It's a result of the sexual revolution to a great degree. If we talked about it, if you feel loved, then you are going to be a lot less likely to choose such things. Uh, we need to feel support, part of a community. We need to feel love. We need to feel like we belong. So there's that community of friendship. That community of friendship, of course, points to the, the third concentric circle, which is marriage. We looked a lot at what the sacrament of marriage was. Marriage is a covenant. Sort of modern ideas of marriage, uh, you know, working towards that, that apex uh, where we find this perfect self-fulfillment. But we also realize that we're living amidst a lot of confusion. The breakdown of marriage, high divorce rate, and what we would call the liquefaction of marriage. We need to be married, or what is marriage? Polygamy, polyamory, open marriages are all considered valid alternatives. And so we need a solid understanding of what marriage is. But I think more importantly, this is where the pedagogy comes in and evangelization. Um, but we need the witness of couples living holy lives. Um, this is the witness of Eros. You know, they say, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. This is the love Eros. Uh, of the love between man and woman, the love that strives for greatness, the love that strives for holiness, and then just the triumphs and struggles that come along with that. And so that really is the power of testimony of, of lives that are lived in holiness. Cardinal Ouellette talked about one of his books about this the, the couple who is in, in, infused with the Spirit, and the Spirit is the radiance of the sacrament. Um, because the, the Spirit is given as a gift in the sacrament, the grace that is given. And this is the one that radiates holiness. Um, and of course, we've talked a lot about joy and the joy of a happy marriage, even through trials, um, which makes me think of something that I had discussed years ago in a homily that was very popular at the time. You know, what are the signs of a holy marriage? And I do think a genuine joy is one of the signs of holy marriage. Often it can be or to discern that these are the things. What does true holiness look like? And we've talked about it. Joy is a sign of true holiness. And then finally, you know, this holiness, this radiation of the sacrament points to this, this sacramental worldview, our overall worldview. This is the most important. You know, you, you have a flawed worldview. You have one that's either purely secular or you're like seeking this immanentistic religion where God is the world um, or some vague pseudo-spirituality, you're not going to be able to really wonder at God's creation, aware of his gift and his presence. It's the difference between the child who can wonder and the cynic who's always picking things apart. We need to have that attitude of the child and the wonder of God's creation, being able to see him in that sacrament of creation. And, and how do we do it? Again, repeating something. It's the refrain I've said over and over and over again. 
if we are not praying, if we are not following Christ, if we're not putting on the mind of Christ, we're not going to be able to see this. Um, and I think this is what happens a lot, that we put the, 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 the cart before the horse. Um, hey, here's the sexual teachings of the church. People, obey them. Don't contracept. Don't fornicate. But yet their hearts aren't conformed to Christ. That deeper conversion, that prayer life that enables you to, to see things from that different perspective are going to be so important, not only for living it out, but also for the pedagogy. That importance of the sacramental and moral imagination, again, stuff that we talked about last semester in um, our, our fundamentals class. In, in our culture, image trumps ideas, or images trump ideas. We've already talked about like the, the reliance on the narrative in the secular, but also the power of images. Russell Kirk um, talks about that, uh, this is his theory, I can't remember where I read this. I think it was in that essay on a moral imagination that I may have given y'all last year from Vegan Goroyan, where from the enlightenment of the 20th century, he calls the age of discussion. Um, where we talk about things and um, we change minds, especially these political, philosophical discussions, the power of science, the power of discourse. But now, you know, we, we still like to talk about things, but does it really change minds? I really don't know. I mean, look at our political discourse. There are a lot of people on the left turning to the right, or the right turning onto the left, very rarely. We live, he claims, in an age of sentiments, where, and maybe Montaigne is sort of one of the ones who heads this way or points towards this, where feelings rule, and images. Um, it's the culture of celebrity, uh, but still, this is how we change hearts, not through reason discourses, but through images, through narratives. And this is how we're going to appeal. And we're good at this as Catholics. The parables of Jesus, the stories, the, 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 the art that we have, the churches, the frescoes. This, this engages the moral imagination. Um, whether it be Bernini or Tolkien or Flannery O'Connor or Catholic musicians. Film too, whatever it is. These images to be able to convey our message. Now, am I talking about, well, let's have these Christian films that are just going to appeal to Christians. No, we need to be able to have films that are willing to appeal to, or art that appeals to everyone, and that mystery, draw them in. Look, I'll give you a perfect example. This is great. One of my favorite um, artists is Nick Cave. He's from Australia. His band, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And he just did this book of interviews um, where he talks about his career, uh, but also the death of his two sons and his conversion. And he's being interviewed by this atheist. And Nick Cave is a believer. He won't tell exactly what he believes, but he believes in religion and organized religion. And he's talking about one of his songs from his classic album, which celebrates 20 years next year. Uh, the Lear of Orpheus and the uh, Abattoir Blues. 
and in in it he 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 does this interview where the interviewer is asking him about his own faith and his own religion, um, specifically one of the songs called Breathless, which maybe I'll put a a link to that. And he says that the interviewer says, a song like Breathless, for instance, seems to me to exalt the luminous beauty of the everyday. Is that not a wondrous subject in and of itself? Yes, and the luminous and shocking beauty of the everyday is something I try to remain alert to, if only as an antidote to the chronic cynicism and disenchantment that seems to surround everything these days. It tells me that, despite how debased our or corrupt we are told humanity is, and how degraded the world has become, it just keeps on being beautiful. Can't help it. But Breathless is in fact an explicitly religious song, a love song to God, which shocks the interviewer who says, no, it was one of the songs we played at our wedding. I never took it for a God song. And he says, well, that's what's known as Jesus smuggling. And it worked. And so here's Nick Cave talking about smuggling Jesus in. Of course, this, of course, the last lesson of the, the, the semester gives me a chance to talk about Nick Cave. We've talked about disco. We've talked about bad brains and punk rock. So we might as well bring in a little Nick Cave. You're not going to actually change minds, but you can get people to think or maybe even get them to feel um, the, the power of testimony. I'm not one who believes that beauty is going to change the world, but somehow I think beauty it does captivate, and I honestly think the goodness of human actions. Um, we need to be able to be connected to this, to reflect it in our theology. Um, anyhow, I, I want to, as we kind of continue to wrap this up, I'm going to land the plane. It's just going to take me a little bit of time to land the plane want to return to the idea of the body because the body is central to everything we've talked about here sacramental worldview the body as a sacrament bodies existing in the world revealing the nature of gift uh, the sexually differentiated bodies in marriage anthropological the body um, the meaning of the body person gift communion and even the, the essential criteria that we established, those are all for humans who have bodies and the way that we act in the world. So as we sort of wrap it up, the key term, which is that stumbling block, is body. And, and I want to, though, conclude by looking at the term body and the way that we as Catholics use it in sort of common parlance. His body is associated, at least as far as I can see, with two other primary realities. The Eucharist, as the sacramental body of Christ, and the Church, quasi-sacrament, but the ecclesial, mystical body of Christ. And so I think that to really have an adequate anthropology proper sexual ethic, we've got to look a little bit more at both of these. Now, these are ideas, hopefully, that can plant some seeds, gentlemen, for you to reflect upon during the break, um, that can, can bear some fruit. I mean, this is part of it. A lot of the things that I've thrown out this semester are ideas. 
I don't have, uh, there's a lot of things that are certainly are conclusive, but the other ideas that I've prayed about or thought about that hopefully you'll be able to take and expand as we sort of move theology forward. So let's begin just looking at holiness of the body in the Eucharistic body of Christ. And I really, I think maybe next year when I teach this, would almost want to have like a whole class on the gift of the Eucharist and its connection to sexual ethics. But we could see that it encompasses everything we've discussed. Body, sacredness, sacramentality, gift, love, communion. I mean, so the Eucharist really, it becomes the, the, the epicenter of sacramentality. We should be drawn to this Eucharistic wonder, the, the, the mystery of the Eucharist. But also, the truth is, is that it is indeed the source of marriage, the gift of self. And this is one of my favorite passages from John Paul II. Besides when he talks about this in Mulier Sigitatim, I think it's 27, the Eucharist, or is it 26? The Eucharist in Familiaris Consortio 57 he talks about the connection between marriage and the Eucharist. He says the Eucharist is the very source of Christian marriage, the very source of Christian marriage. The Eucharistic sacrifice, in fact, represents Christ's covenant of love with his blood, sealed with his blood on the cross. And the sacrifice of the new and eternal covenant, Christian spouses encounter the source from which their own marriage covenant flows, is interiorly structured and continuously renewed. Sacrament of the bride and the bride, gr- gr- the gr- bridegroom, but also that n- notion of sacrifice. Uh, so we sacrifice our bodies. Marriage as a sacrifice. So much richness there, as we can compare the two. That's what we do. Or the ideal for the church is to do weddings in the context of a mass to show the connection between the Eucharist, the body of Christ, giving Himself to His his bride on the altar, um, and the two become one. So here, though, is the key, the key thing, y'all. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about sacramentality. We've talked about following Jesus. In my experience, people striving for holiness and, let's say, sexual integrity um, inevitably have a Eucharistic dimension. Um, there is just like no real purity without the Eucharist. You know, I think of it like the Beatitude. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. This is, again, the pure of heart, seeing God, beholding him in the Eucharist, adoration. Now, it is a medicine for sinners, and we've kind of talked about that a little when we looked at Amoris Laetitia, but we still have to approach it with a great reverence. And the people that I've seen who take Sunday Mass seriously, who go to daily Mass, who have adoration, who are doing what? Encountering Christ in the body, but also worshiping in their bodies, this liturgical, sacramental dimension. They're the ones, again, who find it easier to live out the church's teaching, or at least are willing to. I can't tell you the number of couples that I know who... This, the husband proposed to the wife in front of the tabernacle, and they did a holy hour. This is, this is key. Being present with Jesus, uh, allowing him to, to 
fill them and transform them. And this is how he does it, the work of grace and the work of his spirit, but particularly in communion. Again, we go back to this idea of communion, the communion of persons, but the communion of the Eucharist. Why? We receive the resurrected flesh of Jesus. I realize that I forgot to go back to that question that I brought up of if indeed Christ would have consecrated a host and saved it in a pyx, would he have died? Would Jesus in the Eucharist, his sacramental presence, die when his physical presence died? And Thomas will say in the Summa, yes, it will. Which means, sort of, that we receive Jesus today, we receive his resurrected, crucified and resurrected flesh because we are receiving the flesh of Christ as it exists today in heaven. His physical, glorified body is resurrected. And so this is what John Paul II, I think it was quoting, was it quoting John Damascene in Ecclesia de Eucharistia? Oh, no, it's Ephraim the Syrian talking about receiving spirit and, or eating spirit and fire. Um, this is what we do. We, we, we're the fire, the spirit. We're receiving the spirit in the gift of the Eucharist. And then we, of course, like tie it into this idea of gift of self. Um, we're called, we're giving of ourselves. And this is, of course, the Eucharistic gift of self that which leads to the communion of persons. It's all there. It's all connected. Um, such beautiful mysteries. The couple or the individual who, who ha who's devoted to the Eucharist doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. Doesn't mean that things are going to just fall into place. But it opens the heart to receiving these teachings and living it out in their body. And of course, not with bitterness, but with thanksgiving, because it's all a gift. The Eucharist means thanksgiving. This is the only response to love, to the Eucharist, to the gift of self. It's going to be gratitude, particularly as opposed to this negative, critical, cynical attitude that we see in the culture and even the church. Right? Gratitude, celebrating with others, um, produces joy. And joy, of course, as we've seen over and over again, is that sign of holiness. But it is also, though, this is kind of making the segue to the next part, a source of communion in the church, the Eucharist, the Eucharistic body of Christ. It unites us to Christ. The Eucharist does. We have communion with him. He fills us with his grace. But it also connects us to our brothers and sisters. Why? As I said, because we receive the resurrected flesh of Jesus. If you eat my body and drink my blood, yes, you will live forever. But you are also going to be united in the body of Christ. That is how it works. We're all connected in his living flesh. My favorite quotes from von Balthasar, from his Theodrama, volume 2, talks about this. He says, The interplay between us and sort of the communion of the church is not simply to the meeting of minds, our bodies being hermetically sealed off for one another. There is a sphere far beyond sexual union in which our bodies, too, communicate with one another, not in a biological medium, but in a pneumatic one, grounded in the Lord's resurrection and his Eucharistic state. Of course, this is a great mystery, and it's going to be filled, uh, filled in the next life and in, in, in the eschatological in the eschaton, but it's a mystery we can begin living here. It begins, the Eucharist forms the church as the Eucharist comes from the church. It's that, that mystery, that interplay. 
which leads to, of course, the other concept of body, the church as the mystical body of Christ. As I said, there's a communal dimension to morality, there's an ecclesial dimension. We're called to be moral as Catholics. We're called to, to follow the magisterium. We're part of his mystical body, the one body of Christ, as he's the head. And the church is, or I guess in a certain sense, looking at Eucharistic, we could talk about the spouse, the, the, the analogy of bride and bridegroom. Here, moving to the ecclesial dimension, it is the head and the body. The church is not something purely spiritual. It's real. It's physical. It's quasi-sacramental. There's the hierarchy, the magisterium, the priests, the bishops, and the laity. This is the role of the baptized. We see this as crucial elements of the body of Christ. And it's not just for the perfect. We're getting back into this sort of radical inclusion. We expect conversion. We expect sinners. But... We are welcome to everyone. Church is that field hospital for sinners. We are all broken. And, and I think this is one of the things that I've seen. People reject the church because they think, oh, well, they're holier than thou. Oh, I'll never be this holy. Oh, I'm too broken sexually. No, we need to be willing to say, yes, we are broken individuals, but we're redeemed in Christ. Um, and, and, and acknowledging it's the it's the the, the costumeratrix. It's the, the the chaste whore. This is the church we talked about before, and the mystery of the fathers, where they saw yeah the church is holy, symbolized in Mary, but also how can we reconcile the fact that there's sin there? These these the paradox. These two things exist together. But it's our job, y'all, to really do our best to make the church lovable. Very influenced by Madeleine de Brel. It was kind of like the Dorothy Day of France after the war. So she lived in these cities that were these little communist communities trying to, by the witness of her life, to bring others to Christ. And there's a quote, maybe I read it last year, I can't remember, um, where she talks about this. She says, this is from her very famous book, We the Ordinary People of the Streets. We must continuously strive to make the church lovable. We must continually strive to avoid anything that would needlessly render Christ's love indiscernible to the church. It is a sin of omission not to give witness to the fact that the joy of being a child of God is something we possess in her, our mother. There ought to be a certain family resemblance with the church that shines through our lives. There is a certain witness to eternal life that comes about only in our being a sound in the church's voice. Her love is to a great extent in our hands. It is in her souls that the church is beautiful, says St. Ambrose. In our lives, the church ought to be good. In our lives, the Christ church ought to love as she wishes, according to the movement of his love, according to the rules of his love, according to the demands of his love. And so this is where, okay, there's the truth, there's the beauty of the church, but here is the goodness radiates, the goodness of our lives, the goodness of our eros, the goodness of our chastity. I think will draw people to the church and to see like this is a place that we can belong, where we can be transformed. But it all comes from living holiness in the body. This is the, 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 the conclusion. This is the last point as we sort of wrap up our reflections. Everything else points to this. Personal living of holiness the Eucharistic living of holiness, 
and ecclesial living of holiness. We've got to take holiness in the body seriously as it shines through uh, in our peace and joy um, in all levels and everything we've talked about, our lives of virtue, our church, our ecclesial dimension, and the wonder in our sacramental worldview. It's the beauty of holiness that makes people listen. Althazar says, one can fight against holiness and perhaps to all appearances kill it, but one cannot refute it. Again, we, we, we know it and we see it. And this is the true holiness that isn't perfect, but accepts weakness. It's the little way. Uh, we're called to be saints, not superheroes. Um, and that's why I think the testimony of people who struggle with sexual sin but who pray and who know God's grace and who, who are trying to live NFP in their own lives. This is the holiness of these couples that draw people to the Lord. Um, the witness that, that these sacramental dimensions radiate, but it's ultimately got to be done with the love of Christ that changes hearts as it opens the way to changing minds. That being loved is going to change minds and hearts more than preaching and teaching. And if you preach and teach, if you do it with love and a certain vulnerability, it's going to open the space for others to hear the truth. Um, and so, yeah, you can have all the gifts, but if you have not love, it does not matter. And so that sort of is the, the my concluding reflections, I'm sure. Somehow I'll add some other things for next year, but um, it really does. It, it, as I said before, Christians, it all comes down to love. Uh, I know that is so hokey in a lot of people's minds, and it's not a love of the sexual revolution, but a genuine love of give of gift of self, one that brings about belonging, one that brings about communion. We live this out in our lives, we're connected to the Eucharist, we allow Christ to bring it out, and I think it makes our sexual ethics, our sacramental worldview, make so much more sense to people, and is that real antidote to the craziness of the world. So again, fellas, I hope you could take all this stuff, take some time to um, pray about it, uh, and I hope that you have ideas of yourself that you'll be able to integrate as you uh, communicate these truths. So it's been a good semester. If you enjoyed this last lesson, a little bit briefer than my normal lessons are. Um, but it's been good teaching you and we will talk again soon.